Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Airlines Confidential is in the upright position as we get ready for takeoff. I'm Ben Baldanza, and it's good to have you with us. And I'm Chris Chimes. We're going to cover lots of airspace today, including a year-end conversation with the always insightful John Heimlich, the Chief Economist at Airlines for America. And assuming you hang with us the entire show, we'll share some news about one of us, and it's not Ben. So please stick with us. Wow, Chris. Airline news, airline discussion, and mystery and intrigue all rolled up into one podcast. I guess our loyal listeners have no choice but to hang on till the end. But I'm going to first ask you a question, Chris. And since it involves JetBlue, I'm not going to comment given my position as a board member there, but I'm interested in what you have to say. What did you think about the news late last week about the latest expansion of the JetBlue American Airlines Northeast Alliance in light of the DOJ antitrust case pending before Judge Siorkin? Well, for people who didn't see the news, American and JetBlue announced an additional about a dozen routes into the Northeast Alliance this past week. Somewhat uh, unique timing in the midst of the judge taking this case under consideration as the DOJ pursued antitrust charges against the alliance trying to block it. So my reaction, frankly, was this was a move with a word that starts with B and ends in Y. Uh, but I'll say instead it was a pretty gutsy move that both American and JetBlue felt confident enough about the lack of a case DOJ pursued that they were going to just continue to move forward with the alliance as planned. And they weren't worried about disrupting the outcome of the case or irritating the judge in some way by introducing more routes while the DOJ case was still pending. You know, the Alliance has been in place for well over a year, I think now. The DOJ was supposed to be making a case about consumers being harmed. I don't know if they introduced any data or any specific information into the case about consumers being harmed, but apparently consumers aren't being harmed because there's more competition and more flights in the air because of this alliance. So I could be totally off base here with regard to... uh, where this case is headed, but I saw this as, uh, like I said, a pretty strong confidence that JetBlue and American really weren't worried about the case that DOJ put on. Ben, I know you can't say anything more, so we'll move on to the next subject. There's lots going on at Boeing this past week. As we record this, there's speculation of a 150-plus order of 737s from Air India and a, quote, historic order from United 
speculation is on a 787 wide body order. And there's a press event set for Tuesday, the day after this show drops on Wednesday. On the nostalgic side, the very last 747 rolled off the assembly line in Everett, Washington. But then Boeing seems to have come up empty and trying to get an extension from the U.S. Congress on a delay of a year-end requirement that the 737 MAX 7s and 10s be delivered with upgraded cockpit alert systems. Specifically, Boeing faces a December 27th deadline established in a 2020 law. There are still a few slim chances of Boeing to get their ask before the end of the year, and I really hate to keep picking on this company, but Ben, why are we even talking about this? This is not a surprise requirement, and Boeing is making a somewhat dubious argument that the planes are safer with old technology and pointing to the slow approval process at the FAA, but they can't even get the home state senator, or I guess Senator Cantwell from Washington is no longer the home state senator since they've moved to Chicago and now to Virginia, but they can't get the uh, chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee to support them on this. So what's going on? Well, there's a lot to unpack here, Chris. So let's talk first about the 737s. The unfortunate political reality is that there's no elected official or long-term staffer of the FAA who gets any cred for saying, no, the 737 MAXs don't need this safety feature. After the crashes of that plane, not only did Boeing have egg on their face, not only was the plane not flying for almost two years, but the FAA also was under lots of criticism for deferring too much to Boeing in the original certification of the plane. So given that this was here and they have this requirement by the end of the year, it seemed to me sort of a fool's errand of Boeing to even try to get it extended or eliminated because I can't imagine why anybody would do it and stand up on a threshold and say, we don't need this safety feature for the 737 MAX, right? So I think what's going to happen is Boeing has probably been working on how to respond to this. Maybe they don't have a total solution yet. Maybe they don't like the cost of that solution. They're likely going to have to fund that change with the people who have already bought the plane, and they're probably figuring out what that means. But I think this is going to be a bad thing for Boeing as we go into next year. Now, Going to the big orders, a huge order of 737s from Air India doesn't surprise me. That's a carrier that was recently taken private by the Tata Group. They've talked about combining that carrier with Vistara, a newer airline in India. They also own all the major assets of Air Asia India. So if you think about all the assets that Tata has, they all fly medium-sized narrow-body airplanes, and Air India's fleet is just so old that it doesn't surprise me that they would make a huge order and that they would probably got a very good price for these planes. India is largely an Airbus country, 
with Indigo and Go flying that plane mostly. And so it doesn't surprise me that they would do this. Whether that's enough to fix Air India, I wouldn't be that confident. But clearly, getting rid of the very old fleet they have in the mid-sized narrow bodies, having enough capital with the new owners to make that order, suggests that Tata is serious about investing in Air India and making them a credible player again in the domestic India and India to the rest of the world space. Now, United potentially ordering a lot of 787s doesn't surprise me either. They're an airline that has been most bullish about wide bodies really since the pandemic started. At one point, Scott Kirby said he saw it as a strength that the airline didn't retire as many wide bodies as his bigger competitors did because when long-haul travel recovered, United would be in a better position for this. I think it's related somewhat to the very sad note that the last 747 rolled off the assembly line. That is very sad for all Av geeks, although everybody was expecting that was going to happen. The time of that plane is long gone. But I'm guessing lots of our listeners have flown on the 747. I have. I know you have, Chris. And so that is sad. And the reason I say this is that the 787 is the future wide body for Boeing. And United is very dug into Boeing on its wide body services. United has also you know, ordered the supersonic jets if they ever come, electric airplanes if they ever come. So they like putting out these big shiny objects. Look over here at this great new order. Ignore the fact that our product isn't so great. Ignore the fact that our costs are too high. But look at these great planes we're ordering. (laughs) So I think that's the story there. A lot here, Chris. And, you know, Boeing in and of itself, I'll also say, Chris, they made the announcement earlier this year that they were moving their headquarters from Chicago to Arlington, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. The only reason that could make sense is if the military research and development arm of Boeing is becoming a higher priority with Boeing. The other thing they announced is that they're not going to put out a new midsize airplane until at least 2035, which means if you go to Boeing a decade from now, they're still going to be selling you the 737. Maybe it'll have better safety features in the cockpit by then. Um, So I think all these things suggest that Boeing is a company that is going through a lot of transition Great that they're getting some big orders, but maybe there's even some prioritization within the company that's changing. Yeah, uh, I agree with all your commentary. The only thing I'll add, and you kind of touched on it at the beginning when we talked about the 737 MAX issue, you know, politicians don't like to be put on the spot. And even your friends, you know, they like you to help them solve problems, not always 
put them out into the middle of a problem. So like you said, there's very little in it for an elected official or even an FAA career official from sticking their neck out right now on the 737. And so I don't know who thought they were going to be able to get this done. Um, again, kind of gutsy, but um, I uh, just like the Northeast Alliance deal, a little gutsy to kind of pursue this strategy, but um, it didn't have the recipe for success. They might pull it out still. There's a few other pieces of legislation that have to get enacted before December 27th, but they're really putting elected officials in the hot seat, um, asking them to make a very tough decision. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus 320 NEO family, that best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. And our friends at Seabury Securities boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Ben, as we wrap up the news for the week, lots of chatter about the tentative agreement between Delta and Alpa on a new pilot contract. There's an immediate pay raise of 18%, then 5%, 4%, and 4% raises in the out years, plus some retroactive pay increases, as well as some quality of life improvements the union was seeking. I haven't seen any talk of efficiencies and work rule enhancements for the airline, um, so I don't know if there's some things in there that they wanted. But how does this set the table for the feast that labor is looking to have at the airline family banquet? It's going to be a delicious feast, Chris. <laughs> um, I think Delta has clearly set a standard that American and United certainly are going to have to react to. But beyond American and United, it sets a standard in relative terms for the entire industry. This means that the pilots at a frontier in spirit are going to get paid a lot more, too, because they really live on the relative cost, not the absolute cost. You know, Chris, in the time you and I were working together in the airline industry and for many years, labor has represented about 35% of an airline's cost, half of that being pilots. Given what's happening in pilots now, we've talked about what's happening in the regional space and such. This is just where pilot costs are going. And it probably means that all labor as a percent of total airline costs is growing to more than 40% of total costs. If the industry reacts to this, Chris, just by trying to raise fares, I think that won't really work well. I think there's plenty of people who just won't travel if the fares are a lot higher. So what it really does is put a challenge to every airline that, okay, if we're going to pay more for our pilots and probably more for our airport people and our flight attendants and our mechanics and such over time, 
where can we be more efficient to offset some of those increases and change our cost structure overall? The airlines that are thinking like that right now are likely to come out ahead in a world where pilot pay is going exactly where Delta has pegged it to go. Well, as you said, this doesn't stop with the pilots. Every other work group is going to be looking for their share of increased uh, compensations. I don't think they'll get the 30% or so that this Delta pilot deal has set, but they're going to want more. But I think what it also does too, like you said, is it puts pressure on all aspects of the industry, whether it be on suppliers, whether it be on airports to get more efficient and reduce costs there, whether it be on distribution partners. Again, these are nominal costs compared to labor costs, but if if labor costs are going from 35 to 40, 41%, 42%, where are the airlines going to find savings in that 5 to 6% uh, spread that labor is going to take up? So this is going to have a far-reaching impact across the entire industry and their relationships with all kinds of other costs and partners and suppliers and technology and whatever else. So um, this is going to take several years to flesh out. Well, we'll be right back with John Heimlich from A4A. But first, Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing the industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're pleased to have our friend John Heimlich back for a year-end conversation about the airline industry. John, uh, welcome. I'm sitting in your favorite city, Cleveland, Ohio, right now. So uh, I've been thinking of you all weekend as I walk around with my Michigan shirt on. Oh, jeez. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you're in Cleveland, uh, but sorry you couldn't afford better clothing. <laughs> As we're wrapping up 2022, what are your perspectives, either you personally, John, or the association, what have been the highlights of 2022? Well, I, I think clearly the, the sustained strength in, in leisure demand uh, was a highlight. And I'd like to think the success over the past several months in, in hiring has been uh encouraging as we as we head into 23 and I'm pretty optimistic about 23 not not notwithstanding some of the concerns and of course we're ending the year with fuel prices easing a bit so you know fingers crossed there that's very encouraging so how is the year ending up for the industry with regard to capacity demand and pricing and what about the cargo side too yeah, so so let's let's go sort of backwards. So cargo yields have have been strong uh, as uh, and and cargo load factors as uh, 
you know, capacity is still quite a bit down um, from where it was pre-pandemic, uh, particularly belly capacity. You know, passenger airline departures are down about 15% from pre-pandemic levels. Traffic, depending on the region, has been closer to 2019. Although la- the, the past week, we've seen TSA checkpoint volumes about 7%, 7 to 8% below pre-pandemic. So, so capacity is still lower than, I think, warranted by demand and driven not, not by a lack of desire to put more out there, but uh, caution with respect to our availability of human capital and aircraft and all those things that, that resulted in, in some operational struggles earlier in the year. As far as pricing, it has subsided from really what was a spring kind of peak. We, we saw the biggest real growth in fares in the April, May, June timeframe. And since then, we've seen real declines. You know, we have the, uh, the U.S. CPI report coming out. The consensus is for the CPI to come in about 7.3%. Uh, sequential growth rather than 7.7 that we saw in October. I expect airfares to follow that same pattern of, of subsiding. And of course, some of the some of the pricing strength has been return of some business travel, but uh, a lot of it's been the inability to put out more capacity. So as we turn the corner into the first quarter of 2023, I don't recall the aggregate, but no surprise that the Frontiers, Spirits, Allegiance, and to a lesser extent, JetBlue are the ones leading the capacity growth. We still have, I think, three of the big four showing ASMs that are below their first quarter 2019 level. So let me ask a follow-up to that, John. Earlier in the show, Ben and I were talking about the Delta Pilots deal, and not I don't want you to talk specifically about that, but just the expectation that labor costs are going up over the next couple of years for the industry. So how does the industry respond to these added pressures with regard to whether it be inflationary adjustments, labor price increases, falling yields just a bit from the highs of last summer? Like, How do you put that Humpty Dumpty back together again in the context of making it all work? Yeah, some of those structural cost increases are are definitely a headwind and a, and a concern. On the one hand, clearly it helps attract quality talent and, and retain quality talent. But ultimately, you're right. I mean, those costs have to be paid for by, by customers or you, you see a smaller industry, if not. One lever, of course, is to continue to see recovery in your high-yield traveler. It's, it's a mixed question, you know, and... A lot of carriers are are banking on that to an extent, and part of that comes from, and I should have mentioned this in part of the Ben's question about the end of the year, we saw some late, late year, mostly October, easing of international restrictions in key markets, U.S., Canada, uh, Japan, Korea, I believe, Taiwan, maybe Korea was earlier, Taiwan, um, and Hong Kong. And even uh, it wasn't till sometime in late summer, I think, Australia, New Zealand. So as some of these international markets uh, come back, and some of them are a little richer in 
in corporate travel, that that should help pay for some of these cost increases. Let's hope that we're now looking at, and I've seen some uh, forecasts out there related to crude oil that uh, I think we'll see lower prices and therefore lower jet in, in 23 than in 2022 and maybe maybe in beyond the coming years. And then there's the fuel efficiency lever and some further automation. Uh, we, we saw Alaska Airlines is, is rolling out the uh, electronic bag tagging. And, and I imagine um, process efficiency, those types of things hopefully will, will pay off, you know, and, and continued uh, popularity of, you know, premium cabins for leisure or premium economy. But it's a big, it's a lot of bets. So, I mean, you're right to point that out as a, you know, it's a rich increase. And if it's parroted around the industry, it'll be a headwind for sure. More with John Heimlich in a moment. And a reminder, if you're in the air transportation business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. So, John, if we're a year from now, based on current trends, where do you think the industry is going to be? Your guess is better than anyone's. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that a a year from now, we're close to 2019 operational levels, that it's a profitable year. I would point out the industry already has its highest employment level in 20 years, more than 20. Some people don't realize that. What's been discovered is that we need more people per aircraft, per flight, per departure than we did before. So staffing models have changed and that some of that normalizes, but, um, and, and that international has inched substantially closer to where it was. I, I continue to believe that we've permanently lost some fraction of annual corporate travel. And I think carriers are adapting accordingly. But uh, I think we'll be in a better place uh, financially and traffic-wise and human capital-wise in a year. Now, we're still unwinding some aircraft delivery delays. And I think everything I've read, some of that will continue in the 24 and then start to reach stability. But uh, I think we'll be in a much better place in a year. So, John, as we head into 2023, as the industry's voice in Washington what are the priorities as far as the regulatory and government affairs agenda? So I, I'm personally not the expert on all these things, but uh, hearings on uh, and, and discussions on an FAA uh, reauthorization bill will be well underway and ensuring that FAA has enough funds and resources to not only address airline operations, but all the users for which they're responsible and handle at the centers in particular uh, U.S. and foreign uh, airline uh, activity, generally aviation, military, and the complexity they're dealing with, with drones and all those things, and and making sure they don't interfere with commercial aircraft. All things environment uh, continue to be uh, a focus, will be 
likely pursuing further support for sustainable aviation fuel production in the United States, financial support, that is. We're still very concerned about 5G and interference with aircraft as uh, more telecom companies uh, enter the game. And some of the, uh, I think, relief measures that that were temporarily put in place expire. All things cybersecurity continue to be on the radar. Uh, I guess regulatory, we're we're still, uh, uh, I guess we're approaching... Maybe Monday is the deadline for filing comments on the refunds NPRM. There's another DOT rulemaking that's uh, related to display of uh, ancillary revenues. So those are the ones that come to mind, Chris. Well, John, it's been great having you here. Before you leave, you want to make a real bold prediction, like who's going to play in the Super Bowl? <laughs> The U.S. will reach the uh, semifinals of the next World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> they got four years to start practicing. So, yeah. John, we appreciate you joining us periodically through the year. And uh, we hope you have a good holiday and look forward to talking to you in 2023. Thanks very much, guys. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks, John. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Thanks again to John Heimlich for always taking time to take our questions. That guy's just so smart. I always feel dumb after listening to him. (laughs) Now we'll take some of yours. Please send your comments and questions via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Ben, our first question is from Chris. Not this Chris, but Chris from upstate New York. Hey guys, love the show. Ben, as a Syracuse native, I know you appreciate the horrible layovers required to fly from most markets in the Northeast to Europe, either via Chicago sometimes or Charlotte or Minneapolis although I don't know why it's not going through Kennedy or Boston or Philly. Uh, There's a huge amount of European business and leisure travel coming out of those markets. So it confuses me why it never seems to work to go direct like Norwegian at Stewart. I'm sure Delta, United and A are happy with their hub and spoke model. But what about Iceland Air with A220s or Aer Lingus with the Airbus 320 Neos to say Manchester or Albany, New York? With newer, more efficient A220s, 737 Maxes, and A321 Neos coming out of customs with pre-clearance airports, it would seem like a great way to steal a bunch of real business from the big three. What am I missing here? You know, Chris, I don't think you're missing anything. I think maybe what you might be overemphasizing is the size of those markets. Places like Albany and Manchester and Syracuse, even though I love the city, are significantly smaller than places like New York or Philly or Chicago where the hubs are. Now, as a way to compete with the big alliances with newer, narrow-body airplanes, I agree with you that could be a good strategy for the carriers you mentioned. And it wouldn't surprise me at some point if they try it. 
I could see an Albany or a Manchester sort of being tried. Maybe will only be seasonally at first. Lots of people go to Europe from upstate New York, but not as many in the winter, for example, right? And so this is going to be a tiptoe into it rather than a big strategy to jump into it. And I wouldn't surprise me if one of the carriers you mentioned or another one added some sort of mid-size upstate New York or New England city with a nonstop to a big European market like London or Paris with one of these great new airplanes. It's not going to happen quickly, and it's just going to take time to build. I think that's the real answer, but I like the way you think, Chris. Yeah, the only thing I would add, Ben, is you know I know years ago when American had a nonstop from Raleigh-Durham to uh, London, it was really underwritten by strong pharmaceutical support uh, in that in that market back and forth as they were sending executives and and team members literally every day. So there's got to be a little bit of business demand in in that kind of a market, I think, to make it work. And I'm not sure you know, a big corporation with a corporate deal is going to want to move that traffic to a small carrier if they've got to meet minimums and other kinds of things uh, on international flying. And, you know, the nature of international flying continues to change, especially business travel. So I think with the new aircraft and new technology, these these one-off routes are in fact possible, like you say. But I don't think it's as easy as some people might think, again, because the demand may not be there in a, in a mid-tier market like at Albany. Well, even when flying into New York and Washington, both very big cities, carriers like EOS and MaxJet found that exactly what you're saying, Chris, was a real competitive aspect as to why they couldn't generate enough traffic. The big three made it very expensive for companies to say, if you're going to fly them to New York, then you're not getting our deal to all the other places you go also. The other thing I'll say just about the size, Chris, is cities like Syracuse, Albany, Manchester, and can add Rochester, Buffalo, and those, those cities have struggled over time, even getting to nonstop year-round service to big vacation markets in Florida. They have some service. Southwest has added some service. Allegiance even added some service. But you'd think if those markets can't generate year-round demand to go to Orlando or a Fort Lauderdale, and then you think of how much more expensive it's going to be to fly the much bigger A321, which admittedly is much more efficient than a wide body, but it's still more expensive than a 737 or an A320. It's kind of a stretch to think when one of those markets will really support the European flights. Yep, I agree. And then, Ben, we also heard from John in Seattle, and he's not happy with the changes Delta is making to Sky Club access. He writes us, guys, Delta continues to make lounge access much more difficult and recently announced they will stop selling memberships unless you have status, and they're banning gold members from using the lounge on an international flight. 
Additionally, all Diamond Medallions will now have to use all three choice benefits to get a membership, basically giving up your global upgrade certificates, which can't even be used to get Delta unless you buy Delta Premium Economy. However, none of these changes affect American Express cardholders. Is Delta trying to weed out its most loyal flyers in order to keep the $7 billion a year Amex partnership in good standing? All these actions, lounges, global upgrade certificates that can be only used if buying premium economy, they look like entitlement. Is Delta entitled? They have the highest fares and least upgrade space of any of the big three. They act like they can do this because they are more reliable and are a premium airline. What's your take? Well, I'll start with this, Chris. The only thing I take issue with in John's note is, is Delta trying to weed out its most loyal flyers? I don't think Delta is trying to do that at all. I think Delta has been exceedingly good at figuring out which of their customers make the most money for them. And those probably are customers who hold and actually use the Amex card, among other things. And on their own, get to the high levels of status within their program. So I think if your access to these clubs is going away, it's because Delta has said, we're prioritizing who we want in this club. And I'm sorry, John, but you're not showing enough love to us. I really think that's what Delta's doing here. I don't think they're dumb at all. I think they have really prioritized what's going to make this work best. And they know that clubs that are, you know, salmon packed with people create a better experience for people too. So they're basically saying, you've got to show us more love if you want to get in the clubs. They're going to learn whether this ticks off enough people like you, John, and whether that really hurts their revenue. And if so, you can guess they may retract from some of this. But I don't think they were silly in trying to design this. And I think they've made a reasonable attempt to try to say, how do we make these clubs work better for the customers who really show that they use it through the way they buy and interact with Delta. Chris, yeah, I, what I, you mean? No, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, we, we've got now going on four decades of frequent flyer loyalty programs and more and more people having their status raised and higher level and, and you know, people are million milers and multiple airlines and, and the like, but you know, a million miler in 1989 and a million miler in 2022 are kind of two different things with regard to kind of how you got there. And, you know, I hear, I hear John being frustrated and I can understand, but again, it's years of the lack perhaps of expectation management by airlines that they've encouraged people to want to be a certain status and stay at that level. And now when you have so many people to try to please, you're going to have to kind of weed them out. The one thing I will agree with on John, John's commentary, I flew Delta for the first time in a very long time last week. I just don't fly where they're flying and flew in first class on a 737-800 that hadn't been upgraded. And I was kind of surprised, you know, the lack of overhead bin space, you couldn't get your bag in the way you can on American, where you stand up the bag and more bags fit in. 
So people were running out of, of overhead bin space pretty quickly. There weren't any USB ports. The electrical outlet didn't really work. It was so old that it, the plug kept falling out. I couldn't charge my phone. I couldn't charge my computer. I was kind of surprised by the quality of the cabin, but again, that's been part of Delta's market right now is flying older aircraft and not upgrading because they're relying on this great reliability record with business travelers and they're still demand a premium because of that. So um, he's he kind of tapped into something I thought about this week when I was flying them. It was a great experience, a very great crew. I love the technology of the check-in and all along the way, all the things they've invested in. But there was a little bit of like disappointment with the interior of the aircraft that they uh, can kind of sail past because they're running such a great airline. You know, Chris, I'm sure Delta knows where those airplanes are in their system and they're working to upgrade those over time. But it's probably exactly because you typically find places where Delta is not very big that they deploy those planes there. And that's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, the other thing I'll say here, Chris, is that loyalty programs really over the past decade have made an interesting evolution from programs that used to measure loyalty by usage. How often are you sitting in my seats? To customer profitability. How much money do I make when you actually fly? And Chris, when you and I were at US Airways, we had a big hubbub with these commuters from South Florida who like flying U.S. Airways from South Florida up to New York and Boston and Philly, but they only bought the cheapest fares whenever they bought because their travel was so predictable they could buy way in advance and such. And when we told them we weren't going to consider them as loyal as they think of them, they got really mad at us. And what Delta's doing with the clubs is just you know, it's 20 years later, but it's that same idea. Well, they're kind of switching the paradigm a bit in that instead of trying to say, we recognize you as loyal members of the Delta customer base, now the loyalty is being shown back the other way from the airline to the customer. As, as we're going to be loyal to you because you're a very profitable customer. So um, it's it's a hard thing for customers to uh, process because it, it really changes the paradigm of loyalty programs. Well, as we wrap this up for the week, we're going to dispense with the regular shout outs of the week and give you a heads up instead. Next week, we're going to be announcing some programming changes to the podcast. I'm going to be stepping back from my co-hosting duties and we're going to be revealing the new co-host who will join Ben each week. And it's quite a catch. So please make sure to listen to our show that drops on December 21st to get the scoop. Got that, Ben? I'll be there for that show. I hope I can manage the suspense until then, Chris. And keep a secret as well. Thanks again for joining us this week. I look forward to talking to you next week and uh, have a good one. Have a great week, everyone. And thanks for downloading Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.